Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello, and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and just a little bit of a history nerd. I'm really excited to share this story with you today. This episode is pretty fascinating and I'm, it's a really busy time of year, but I'm really stoked that I've been able to carve out a bit, of a, t- a bit of time to get into this one because it's a really interesting one. This episode has a doomsday cult, an Australian Federal Police investigation, terrorist plots and sarin gas. Sorry, but there's no romance in this one, but I think you'll still agree that it's a very interesting story. Before we begin today, I'd like to pay my respects to the Wongatha people from the Leonora area, which is where this story takes place, and also to the Noongar people of the Esperance area, which is where I'm recording today. The First Nations people of this country have a history and a connection to this land that goes back tens of thousands of years, and I'd like to acknowledge that at the outset and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Now, this story doesn't begin in Western Australia at all, but rather it begins in Japan in 1987, when a man called Shoko Asara founded a cult called Om Shinrikyo. Now, the belief system of this particular cult is quite complicated, but it's basically a mixture of Buddhist beliefs mixed in with some Christian beliefs, and it also took inspiration from the teachings of Nostradamus. Ashara began calling himself the only enlightened master, and he published a book outlining his teachings. He became obsessed with biblical prophecies, and he issued his own doomsday prophecy. Ashara said that the world was going to end in a nuclear Armageddon, and only the people who joined Orm Shinrikyo would be saved. The cult grew quite quickly in the late 1980s and early 90s, and attracted quite a few university graduates as cult members. At its height, the cult had tens of thousands of members. There was a theory as well that the cult's focus on science and technology, as you'll see as the story goes on a little bit further, helped them to recruit well-educated members. They began to attract some negative attention in the 90s for things like not allowing cult members to leave, holding them against their will, forcing them to donate money and valuables, and there were even allegations that they murdered a cult member who tried to leave the group. This is all very troubling, but you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Western Australia? Well, we're getting to that part now. In 1993, the cult, Om Shinrikyo, purchased a station in the Western Australian outback. This station was called Banjawan Station, and it's located near Leonora, which is 350 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie. The station covers 1 million acres, which is just an average station for outback Western Australia. For comparison, the largest stations in Western Australia are Home Valley at 3.5 million acres and the De Grey Station, which is around 3 million acres. Rawlina is the third largest station in Western Australia and it's the largest sheep station in Australia at 2.5 million acres. 
But all of these pale in comparison to Anna Creek, which is a cattle station in South Australia, which comes in at 5.8 million acres, an area of land which is slightly larger than Israel. Anna Creek is seven times the size of the United States' largest station, which is in Texas. So apparently things are not always bigger in Texas. But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to the story. But before we get back to talking about the Orm Shinrikyo cult and Banjawan station, let's just take a little moment to talk about Leonora. As I said, Leonora is located 350 kilometres north of Kalgoorlie and it's within an area that is called the Western Desert. That's a large area of desert that comprises the Gibson Desert, the Great Sandy Desert and the Little Sandy Desert. I'm not sure who named the Great Sandy Desert or the Little Sandy Desert, but of course those are very apt descriptions. Leonora is a pretty dry place. It has an average annual rainfall of just 234 millimetres, which is not very much at all. The Leonora area is home to the Wongatha people, the traditional custodians of the area, many of whom still live in the Goldfields area. And the Wongatha language is still spoken by quite a few people living in the Goldfields region. The first white settlers visited the area in 1869. That was John Forrest, who was an explorer and later the Premier of Western Australia. And he was on an expedition looking for the lost explorer Ludwig Leichhardt. And the story of Ludwig Leichhardt is a fascinating story, but we'll have to leave that one for another day. John Forrest named Mount Leonora after his six-year-old niece. And later, the town that was founded near Mount Leonora was also named Leonora. Of course, as I'm sure you know, there was a gold rush in the area that started in Kulgadi and Kalgoorlie in 1892. And actually, it was the Wongatha people who first showed the white settlers the gold that was in the area. Before long, the entire area was swarming with people who were looking for gold and trying to strike it rich. And in 1895, a man called Edward Sullivan, who had the amusing nickname Doodah Sullivan, found gold in the area that would become Leonora. A town very quickly sprang up, and by 1899, Leonora had a butcher's shop, a post office, three hotels, three bakeries, a church, a school, and, and a Cobb & Co coach service to Coolgardie. They even had a cordial factory and a newspaper, the Mount Leonora Minor. Leonora's Exchange Hotel was transported to the town from Fremantle in prefabricated sections, which was quite an, an achievement for the time. Leonora became particularly famous for the Sons of Gualia gold mine, just a few kilometres away from the town. Mining began at the Sons of Gualia claim in 1897, and it became the largest gold mine in Western Australia outside of Kalgoorlie. It was also the deepest mine in Australia. Mining was done down an incline shaft to a depth of 1,080 metres. And if the thought of being 1,080 metres underground doesn't make you immediately anxious, then maybe you've got it in you to be a gold miner. I certainly couldn't do it. In the years that the mine was open, from 1897 to 1963, 2.64 million ounces of gold were mined from this one mine. And that's an approximate value in today's prices 
of 4.55 billion Australian dollars worth of gold. Of course, a little town site sprang up around the mine as well, which was called Gualia, and today Gualia is pretty much a ghost town and it's also a tourist attraction. Well worth a visit. Back in 1897, a young American geologist came to work at the Sons of Gualia mine. His name was Herbert Hoover. Of course, Herbert Hoover went on to become the President of the United States. The house that Hoover lived in when he was working at Sons of Gualia is still there and you can visit it. It's a tourist attraction. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll remember that I mentioned Herbert Hoover in my episode about the rescue of Modesto Varaschetti. And if you haven't heard that one yet, go back and have a listen. It's well worth it. It's a very interesting story. Interestingly, Gualia was the first town in the entire state of Western Australia to have a public swimming pool. As I said though, these days the town is mostly a ghost town and a tourist attraction. But many of the buildings and a lot of the mining equipment have been restored to what what it was like in 1900. So it's well worth a look if you're ever in that area. And again, I would suggest that you do, if you get the chance, go and visit that area. It's quite a dry, kind of desolate area, but it's got an incredible beauty of its own as well. So these days, Leonora is still a mining town, with a number of gold mines still operating in the area, as well as a nickel project. It's a small town with only around 550 people living there, as at the 2016 census. But anyway, let's get back to the story of the doomsday cult, Orm Shinrikyo, who, as you'll remember, purchased the Banjawan station in 1993. Apparently, one reason that the cult chose this particular station was that they were looking for areas that might be suitable for uranium mining. And of course, they wanted an area that was, was remote and isolated. In September of 1993, 25 members of the Orm Shinrikyo cult, including a number of scientists, arrived in Perth. They had $30,000 worth of excess baggage with them. Now, of course, the customs officials were a little bit suspicious about this amount of excess baggage, so they searched all of the group's baggage and they found that it included a mechanical ditch digger, gas masks, picks and shovels, generators and respirators. More concerningly, there was also concentrated hydrochloric acid in bottles labelled hand soap and a number of other chemicals and lab equipment in their luggage. So, as a result of this search, two of the group members were charged with bringing dangerous goods into the country and they were fined $2,400 each and all the chemicals were confiscated. But, and I think this is quite mind-blowing, all of the group were still allowed into the country. Of course, this is in 1993, before 9-11 had happened, and we had much less of an awareness of the possibility of terrorist attacks. Anyway, the group set up at Banjawan Station, and locals in the area reported some very strange sights, such as group members wearing full protective suits. The group members also seemed very skinny, as though they hadn't eaten in days, according to the man who delivered mail to the stations in the area. They also had a lot of chemicals delivered to the station. 
wasn't that unusual as they were the kind of chemicals that could be used in swimming pools, for example, except that Banjuan Station didn't have a swimming pool. The mailman also delivered barrels of hydrochloric acid to the station. He reported hearing strange repetitive tapes playing and, on one occasion, someone cutting the lawn at Banjuan with a pair of scissors. Another time, the mailman spoke to one of the group members at Banjuan, who said she was purging demons from her body by drinking mustard and salt water. And I quote the, the mailman here, I remarked that they must have been very bad demons. Another woman reported seeing cult members standing on their heads for long periods of time, and they also didn't seem to have any interest in running the station. The sheep went unshorn and things like that. This didn't go on for very long. In fact, in 1994, Orm Shinrikyo sold the station. The new owners, the White family, found lots of strange things at the station, including lab equipment and chemicals. They didn't think too much of it, but in 1995, the family received some very strange anonymous calls, asking them strange questions and telling them to turn on the TV. They did, and they saw the news that there had been a terrorist attack on the Tokyo subway. Now, you might remember this attack. It was carried out by Orm Shinrikyo, who released sarin gas on the subway in a terrible, horrifying attack that killed 13 people and seriously injured 54 people. It also caused other symptoms such as temporary blindness in hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of other subway commuters. After this attack, police raided Orm Shinrikyo compounds across the country. They discovered explosives, chemical weapons, and even a Russian military helicopter. Investigators discovered that Orm Shinrikyo was also behind another attack in another Japanese city, Matsumoto, the year before, in which eight people died and 500 people were harmed. In the investigation, Orm Shinrikyo was also found to have killed several cult members and they were also holding many other cult members prisoner in cells in their compounds. They had planned other terrorist attacks and carried out a few as well, with varying levels of success. And of course, I'm putting success in inverted commas here as I'd, it's not a success in my book. More than 150 cult members were arrested for various offences, including the Tokyo subway attack. The cult leader, Asahara, was arrested as well, after police found him hiding inside the wall at a cult building. So, back to Australia. The new owners of the Banjuan station reported the strange calls that they'd received to the police. The Australian Federal Police opened an investigation. They came to the station and conducted a thorough investigation and they discovered that the cult members at Banjuan had been manufacturing sarin gas and testing it on sheep. There was evidence of around 29 sheep that had been killed with sarin gas, along with evidence of many other chemical experiments. A funny thing happened while the investigators were there. While they were staying at the Leonora pub, a briefcase containing sensitive documents was stolen from one of the investigators' cars. The investigators got warrants to search every house in the town to recover the briefcase, but it was found dumped the next day with all of the documents still in it. 
Apparently, it was just an opportunist who had stolen it out of the car. Anyway, the Australian Federal Police's investigation contributed to Japanese prosecution of the cult members, and it was also used in a US Senate inquiry into the cult's use of chemical weapons. A door from the station, marked as a laboratory in Japanese, is now in the Australian Federal Police's museum in Canberra. Another thing happened in 1993 the year that the cult owned the station, in the area around the Banjuan station. There was a seismic event, something that sounded like an explosive being detonated, and several people reported seeing a flash, something like a fireball in the sky. After the information came out about the cult members who lived at the station, there was a lot of speculation that Orm Shinrikyo had been testing nuclear weapons. There was a bit of an investigation into this whole event, as the seismic event was so great that the shockwaves caused a bit of damage to one of the mines. There was speculation that it could have been an earthquake or an explosion at one of the other mines in the area, but investigators thought that those explanations didn't quite fit. In the end, despite the speculation, it seems that Orm Shinrikyo had not been in the country at the time of the explosion, and so it was probably not them. Investigators think it was probably an aerial meteor explosion, and it was just a coincidence that Orm Shinrikyo moved in shortly after. But it does go to show how huge and sparsely populated this area of the country is, that all of the events that happened at Banjuan Station could happen without attracting huge national attention. These days, the station is still owned by the White family and it's now been converted from a, a sheep station to a cattle station. And after a trial that went on for more than 20 years, 13 of the cult members who were responsible for the Tokyo subway attack, including Asahara, the cult leader, were executed in Japan. Orm Shinrikyo still exists, although it has been renamed to Aleph and it is now classified as an illegal terrorist organisation in Japan. And so there you have it. That's the story of Banjuan Station and how a Japanese doomsday cult ended up living on a remote sheep station in the Western Australian outback. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And as I mentioned before, I've got one more shorter episode coming up for you before the end of the year. As always, I love getting any feedback, so please do get in touch with any questions, comments, anything at all. And if you've got a story to sh and if you've got a story to suggest, that'd be great too. I can put it on the list. If you're interested in any more detail about this story, you can check out my website, and also on the website I've got references for some of the articles that I used in putting together this podcast episode, and in particular I'd like to mention one article that was on the ABC's website. I'll put up a link on the website, and that was a fascinating article. So the website is www.wildwastories.com. You can also get in touch with me by email. That's wildwastories at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter and Facebook under Carly Florison. And you can also follow Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past on Instagram as well. That is Wild WA Stories Podcast. And I'll be posting some photos that go with each of the episodes on Instagram. So follow along there if you'd like to. 
Thanks so much for listening in. I really appreciate your company and I really hope that you've enjoyed this story as much as I have. And I'll be back really soon with another wild story from Western Australia's past. 